This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, combat veteran and best-selling author Dan Hampton, the Oxford and Dartmouth-educated writer, flew 151 combat missions over the course of a decorated 20-year career in the United States Air Force. For his service, he received four distinguished flying crosses with valor, eight air medals with valor, and the Purple Heart. As a writer, he has produced the best-selling books Viper Pilot and Lord of the Sky. His most recent book, just out, is Operation Vengeance, which tells the harrowing story of the secret mission to shoot down the mastermind of the Pearl Harbor attacks, Izoroku Yamamoto. When asked if this mission is as well known to the public as it should be, here's what author Dan Hampton had to say. Well, I I think it was fairly well known in the first 30 or 40 years after the war. Uh, but now, you know, you ask you ask people about World War II, and they they look at you like you're talking about, you know, the Battle of Marathon or something. <laughs> uh, I, although, you know, I should caveat that with the fact that uh, a lot of a lot of the reading public has always maintained a steadfast interest in World War II, and I think that's because, as you and I can relate to, that was probably the last black and white good versus evil period in our nation's recent history, you know. There was no doubt of a cause. Politics didn't really play much into it. You know, it was it was a fight that we, we had to do versus the ones that came later, you know, in the decades after the war. It, that's debatable. But World War II was something that had to be fought, and I think that's one reason why people, you know, enjoy reading about it and talking about it. I can't imagine what it would be like. You, you touched on something that's a, probably a huge topic, but you touched on the idea that there are generations and generations, in, including you, who, who weren't alive during a period when the U.S. was engaged in a war that, that was completely devoid of politics, that, as you say, there was, was black and white. I, I, I wonder what the effect is on the psyche when politics are involved. And as long as I've been alive, as long as you've been alive, they've always been involved. Yeah, and it you know I think it I think it changes things, and maybe that's why people remember it fondly. And I don't mean to to sound callous about it because obviously millions and millions of people lost their lives, so it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a fun time. But I think it was a time that was exciting, especially in America, because we were coming out of the Great Depression. You know, we had we had a couple of very dark years there in 1942 and early 1943. But after that. You know, the country was behind the effort. There were uh, there were good memories. You know, we we were actually fighting for a cause. And I'm not again, I'm not I'm not slamming the causes that came later, but with very few exceptions, everybody was behind this struggle because the alternative was Nazi Germany or Imperial uh, Japan, and nobody nobody in the West wanted that. Politics today, being what it is, and the, the world is a lot smaller place in a lot of ways, the struggles aren't nearly so, so clear-cut, and I think that makes a big difference to people that are enthusiastic about reading about this. And in fact, as you say, the options were either Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan or some combination thereof. Admiral Yamamoto even said very clearly that, that it's not enough to, to take even San Francisco. We, we need to go straight to Washington, D.C., and, uh, and the mentality was get, get there, uh, dictate terms, or else this would not be considered a victory. 
Right. What he, what he, and and I'll I'll caveat what you said. He actually said that, but what he what he was trying to get across to his fellow admirals and generals in Japan was, you're not going to beat the United States. You're not going to force the country to surrender based on on temporary victories on the battlefield. If you ever were to beat the United States, you'd have to invade and conquer it, which means walking down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House and demanding terms. Now, he knew that that would never happen. We sometimes attribute our capabilities to our enemies, and the fact that we could move men and equipment all over the world and fight at will doesn't mean that they could. In fact, they still can't, but but it was even more true then. There was no way Japan was ever going to invade the United States. But he was trying to make the point that you really don't understand the Americans. And he did, because he had he'd spent a lot of time here. He went to he went to Harvard. He'd been a naval attache in Washington. He'd he'd hitchhiked all over America. He knew what we were capable of, which is A, why he didn't want to fight us in the first place, and B, when he was forced you know, to fight, he said, look, I'll give you six months or maybe a year, and after that I can make no promises, because he knew what would happen, and it did. So he's a central character here. Another central character, obviously, is Rex Barber. Can you introduce us to Rex Barber, born in Oregon in 1917? He became the pilot who, well, we can get into this later, who most people, it seems, believe was the one to shoot down Yamamoto. Who, who is this Rex Barber? Yeah, we can talk about the controversy because that's an important part of this book. But Rex Barber was was in a lot of ways he was he was a typical American kid. You know, he was born he was born in in Oregon, out in the country, not near the coast. I actually went to his to his childhood home and, and saw where he grew up in the Deschutes uh, River Valley. That's beautiful, you know. And and he he was he grew up like a lot of kids did. He grew up in the during the Depression. He was very independent. He, he you know he rode horses and roamed around and was on his own a lot. And that developed him into a very self sufficient, you know, tough kind of kid like most of the men that entered the military in 1941 and 42 and beyond. They, th- these were tough guys. I mean, they hadn't had easy childhoods, you know. You know, Rex was typical in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, he was a little different. He was he was kind of quiet, but he had a very dry sense of humor. He was a typical frat boy, you know, for the <laughs> for the little while that he spent in college before before he went out and joined the Air Corps. He liked what everybody liked: music and dancing and girls, and he and he liked to fly. And that's how he ended up uh, flying P-38s. One of the questions that came to mind when I was reading this book and just reading about this whole period of time, it, it, it's amazing to me how long after the attacks at Pearl Harbor that Operation Vengeance took place. April 1943, April 18th was, was the actual attack. What went on between the attacks at Pearl Harbor and Operation Vengeance? You can't really look at it in terms of, of time, per se. You have to look at it in terms of events. Okay, from from the time Pearl Harbor was attacked to the spring of 1943, you know, Russia got invaded, uh, the Germans were all over North Africa, Japan had attacked us in the Pacific, Japan had also attacked the Philippines, they'd conquered Wake Island, they'd rolled all the way through Malaysia and, and conquered the Dutch East Indies. The Doolittle Raid had happened in April 1942, exactly one year to the date before the Vengeance Raid. 
and and really for for Yamamoto six months they they ran wild in the Pacific and we were just basically gasping for breath and trying not to take too bad of a beating while our military got spun up from three hundred thousand guys to you know a few million while the industry was was transformed from making cars and tractors to making airplanes and tanks you know that that all took time and and really even by today's standards they moved pretty quick i mean by the summer of 1942 we'd already gone on the offensive against japan in the south pacific and there was a really hard fought nasty battle that i went into some detail in the book about the guadalcanal where you know it's it's roughly analogous to the alamo you know it was a line in the sand we 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 were going to stop them there or at least die trying and that took place all through the fall of 1942 so by the time 1943 came around we were just beginning to kind of catch our breath the japanese weren't really slicing at our our throat every day anymore we had a, a little bit of breathing room not much but a little bit the war in Europe was beginning to pick up, and our military had expanded drastically. And so Rex Barber shows up. He'd been in the Pacific, you know, since 1942, the you know later 1942, but he didn't get to Guadalcanal until 19, uh, right before Christmas, 1942. So he'd only been there a couple of months when they dreamed this this mission up and this mission largely came about because a we had one at Guadalcanal and we had a base there from which to fly because the Navy couldn't do it. Uh, their airplanes didn't have long enough you know, range to do it, and they weren't going to bring their aircraft carriers in close. So it had to be land-based. Guadalcanal was the only place they could do it from. And the second big event was we had deciphered enough of the Japanese Navy code that we knew where Yamamoto was going to be at a certain place at a certain time, you know, on a certain day. And so that's when they put this, this mission together to try to go get him. Talk about some of the great risks that were taken to do this mission. Obviously, the, the fuel problem is, is one of the most obvious. But when you were researching this and reading and, and going deep into the archives, what did you learn about the planning that surprised you? What What is risky about what they did that may not meet the eye at first glance? Well, uh, it, it's all risky. I mean, any any kind of combat, any kind of flying is risky, but any kind of combat flying is, is even more, you know, uh, fraught with peril, if you will. Uh, and as a combat pilot, I, I know it well, I remember it, and while I was looking, you know, researching this, you know, I could very clearly make some parallels to some of the missions that I flew to this one. The thing that struck me the most was the, the fact that they they were able, and this speaks to their professionalism, they were able to throw this together and, and put it all together within the span of a couple of days because they didn't actually get word about Yamamoto's whereabouts until just a few days prior. And so they went to this Army fighter squadron on Guadalcanal and said, can you do it? And the Army Major, Major John Mitchell, uh, that, that was going to lead the mission, basically took the Navy preliminary plan that they dreamed up and threw it out because none of it was accurate. And and overnight, not even overnight, I mean, with the span of a couple hours, he came up with the route, the timing, the fuel, and everything else that it takes to do this. Now, in a lot of ways, that's not that surprising because, again, these were combat pilots. They were doing this every day. They weren't flying to Bougainville where they got Yamamoto, but, I mean, they were going up every day and flying and fighting. So to everybody except for Tom Lanthier, uh, this mission was just another combat mission. 
And that's the way they treated it, you know. The flying part is what really impressed me, though, because, you know, these were P-38s. They were very advanced for their time, but compared to the F-16s and F-22s that I flew, you know, they, they might as well have been burning wood. Uh, you know, they, he didn't have any satellite interlinks. He didn't have any GPS, obviously. You know, he didn't, he didn't have any of that stuff. He planned this route and led this route and flew this route with a stopwatch and a compass, Okay, not a stopwatch, a wristwatch. And he had to get them, you know, over 400 miles over water, so there's no landmarks to check his navigation, over water to within 30 seconds or a minute of when he'd planned to be there in order to get Yamamoto before he landed. It's an astonishing piece of, of airmanship, of flying, and that's what really impressed me about, you know, John Mitchell's part of this. You mentioned Lanfear. Can you talk a little about Lanfear? He's a character that obviously is crucial to this whole thing. Who, who was he, and, and also why did he have a different attitude towards this than the rest? Well, he's crucial to the story. It wasn't really crucial to the mission. I'll say up front, you know, he was a brave guy. Nobody but a brave guy would be out flying combat under any circumstances, but I'll say that his motivations were always different from the very beginning. And he made that clear. There's some, some pretty good contemporary accounts of some things that he said and some, some claims that he made. He wanted to be a politician after the war was over, and he, he felt certain that if he had a splendid war record and did something exemplary other than just surviving, which is what most of us want to do, it would help him with his political career. So he inflated some of his claims, quite a few of them, as a matter of fact. And and he flat out told Rex Barber, it's in the book, but, you know, he said, hey, I want, I'm going to be president of the United States one day, and, and I need a mission like this, you know, to make that possible. And, you know, I'll tell you from experience, so those are the kind of guys you stay away from if you can, because in, in real combat, when people are shooting at you, you don't want somebody who's who's out on a metal hunt, you know, he's trying to build a reputation and not concentrating on what he's doing because he's going to get you killed. So I'm frankly surprised that, that Lamphere lived through the war. But he ended up on this mission, he was Rex Barber's flight lead, so there were four guys out of 16 that were dedicated to, once they got to Bougainville, to attacking Yamamoto's bomber. Lamphere was leading that four that four ship, it's called, a, f a group of four airplanes, with Rex Barber on his wing, and then there were two other guys with him. And so his job was to split off from the other 12 P-38s once they got to Bougainville and go shoot down the bomber. That's what he was supposed to do. And then what happened? What happens is they hit the Bougainville coast, Empress Augusta Bay, and they're, they're right on time. I mean, Mitchell did a superb job. Mitchell and the other 12 P-38s split off. They're all, all 16 are flying together, and the 12 of them start to climb up because they're all at very low altitude over the water. They climb up, and they turn towards the middle of the island because they expect this, this island to be just swarming with Japanese Zero fighters because there are 80 of them based there. And they couldn't believe that, you know, with Yamamoto, their commander-in-chief coming, that there wouldn't be a huge, you know, umbrella of fighters just for a show of force and also to protect him. Uh, but the Japanese didn't do that. They were very complacent. Once again, they underestimated us, and they thought, hey, we're 400 miles behind the lines here. We're perfectly safe. So all they had protecting Yamamoto initially were six fighters that had flown with them from Rabaul. 
And so Mitchell climbs up and heads over looking for the for the four you know for all the Japanese fighters. Lanthier and Barber and the other two head inland for the bomber. And two things happen: the other two airplanes that are with them can't get their wing tanks to to jettison. So they circle back over the coast because they didn't want to go into combat with big tanks of gas hanging under their wings. And the other thing that happened is that turns out to be two bombers instead of one. They'd only been told that there was going to be one bomber, but all of a sudden they see they see two. And so now there's two P-38s against two bombers, which isn't a big deal, but about that same time they see the escorts and there are six of them. Now, Lanfear does exactly what he should do. He breaks away from Barber, and he climbs one against six into these escorts. Because if he hadn't done that, the escorts would have come around and, and, and gotten in behind he and Barber and probably shot him down. So he turns into him, leaving Rex himself all alone to head into these two bombers to shoot him down, and that's exactly what Rex does. He, he goes after the lead bomber, and he rolls up behind him, and the second bomber peels away and dives down towards the jungle and disappears. And Rex shoots the first bomber down and then uh, breaks away and looks back and sees some of the Zeros coming after him, so he shoves the throttles up and heads for the coast, runs into the second bomber, which has emerged from over the jungle and is trying to get to safety, and Rex shoots that one down too. So he's in the right place at the right time, and he got them both. The way you describe it is so cinematic. I can picture it all. And I hear the words, and I wonder how much your expertise in this topic, in combat, in flying planes, how much all of this plays a part. Would you be able to do anything you're doing now, uh, writing about a topic like this, without the background you've ha you have? And another way of asking that question is, how do people who don't have your background approach this? It seems an insurmountable task to me. <laughs> Well, you know the old expression, we all fall back on our strengths, right? And fortunately, for, for, the, for what I write, a lot of it deals with aviation. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I'm able to do that. The, the other people that write on the, on the topic, you know, they, they may write about what I just told you, but they can't put themselves in the cockpit because they've never been in a cockpit, right? They can't put themselves in combat because they've never been in combat. Now, that doesn't mean what they write about isn't, isn't valid and interesting, but it probably has a lot more of a concentration on some other aspect of this, like maybe the personalities of the men involved or the history or something like that. I tend to, to write it from the cockpit when I can because I find that people really enjoy feeling like they're in there with them, you know what I mean? Uh, they're they're part of this. They can they can they can see it. They can smell it. They can touch it. And I you know I try to write about it that way. And in fact, whenever possible, when I write these books, I, I go and I fly the airplanes that 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 were involved. You know, I, I did one on Lindbergh a few years ago, and I was able to get into one of one of the replicas of the Spirit of St. Louis. And that's how I wrote, you know, about his 33-hour flight to Paris. For this one, uh, there's there's a, a flyable P-38 out here in Colorado um, that a museum was kind enough to let me use um, so that I could get the, the switches correct and I could get the feel and the smell, you know, of a P-38 and what it was like to, to fly it. So then maybe I can, I can ride it in such a way that a person actually feels like they're in there with them. I hope that's what you're saying, because that's a very good compliment. If it's not, well, that's okay, but but uh, that's, that's what I try to do. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm curious, was that the first time you flew P-38 uh, just uh, in preparation for this book out in Colorado? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. It's the first time I've ever I've ever been in one. Uh, you know, and I I pr- much prefer that to Lindbergh Spirit of St. Louis. I'll tell you, I don't know how that guy flew 33 hours in that thing. I didn't want to I didn't want to be in it for 20 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> but it's you know, but it's but it's invaluable to be able to do that. And then I also found the world's oldest living P-38 pilot, and so I was able to talk to him, and and say, hey, did I get this right? You know, because I was a jet guy. All right. Now I wanted to. I wanted to know. Hey, what does a what does a P-38 feel like? You know, what did it feel like to you? What did one that's been in the Pacific for six months? What did it smell like? You know, that kind of thing. Because I find that when I write, the descriptions, especially smell and taste, really are something that people can relate to. Because a lot of people can't relate to flying because they've never done it. But you know, a smell is a smell. So if you can inject that some, you know, some of those descriptions into your writing, then it then it helps. So you you have this vision in your mind. You've been in in this field your whole life. You you've obviously studied planes. You've studied combat. You've flown 151 combat missions yourself over the course of 20 years. But you get in the P-38. What do you think? What surprised me the the most was how much room there was in the cockpit. It actually was a little bit bigger than the than the jet that I flew. You know, they didn't have a lot of the ergonometric uh, engineering and stuff that we did, but it was laid out. It was laid out pretty well, and and it was you know a very big, stable, you know, relatively easy airplane, you know, to 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 get around in. And I can see why it was so popular with with guys because it was a big, tough, you know, airplane. It could take a lot of damage. I mean, Rex Barber got got hit i've he had he had over 100 holes in his airplane from bullets from the second bomber from shrapnel from the second bomber you know when the engine blew up other things like that and it still managed to get him back you know a few hundred miles across the south pacific and and get him home safe and i i know what that feels like and and you feel an, an immense sense of gratitude <laughs> you know to your airplane to to be able to do that and i know why so many guys were very you know they remember that airplane very affectionately it was a good airplane one thing i was surprised about reading this book is frankly how little there is about the wartime president franklin delano roosevelt it, it seems that he didn't play such a big role in this mission operation vengeance and is it unclear if he even formally ordered this did it strike you in in the research i'll put it to you obviously that that he didn't seem as hands-on as i frankly would have imagined in a way that's good you don't want politicians looking over your shoulder when you're eight thousand miles away trying to fight they had to get approval for this mission because it was a, a special mission a specifically targeting an individual it wasn't just you know hey go out and patrol over this area and shoot down whatever's there they were specifically going after Yamamoto and there were there were reasons why Roosevelt might not want it an overt role in this maybe maybe if it was known that he enthusiastically approved of it somebody would come after him you know, Yamamoto wasn't a head of state, though, which which makes it a lot different. I think Roosevelt, for the most part, was content to let his his generals and admirals, you know, run their part of the war their way. He was smart enough to know that he didn't know enough about it to be able to interfere, uh, which made him a, a very good politician and president, in my opinion, because he knew his limitations. I personally think he was briefed on it. I don't think any notes were kept. I think he knew about it, and I think he, you know, said something, you know, to the effect of, well, that's fine. Let me know how it turns out. That's just my my guess. There's been a lot of, you know, talk about, 
you know, this this was an assassination, and it's and it's and it's illegal, and and I just have to laugh at that because an assassination uh, is different than than targeting a serving military officer when you're at war with that officer's country. Okay, that's not an assassination. That's that's a killing. That's a combat mission like this was. Um, but a lot of people make you know try to try to drudge up Yamamoto's. Uh, fate when they talk about you know the government assassinating people and Americans don't do that well you know we don't want to get into that but I'll tell you that this was not an assassination Yamamoto was a serving line officer in the Japanese Navy and we were at war with Japan some of the stuff going on in the Middle East you know those guys aren't regular soldiers they may or may not be involved in the military they may or may not be political figures you know it gets messy and gray the thing with yamamoto was like much of the war you know there was no gray area it was black and white i want to put the focus to you for a moment how did you get into writing did you wake up one day and say i i, I want to write down what i'm doing I mean, where does this come from it's not so common that someone with your background uh, becomes a, a professional writer a, a whole new life post active duty combat yeah, I didn't intend to. I'd uh, gone off on a big boat for a few years after I retired from the military, and and then I, I got into business, and then I became a, uh, we don't say mercenary anymore, a private military contractor. Yeah, that's what, that's what it's called. <laughs> and I was going I was going back, and mercenary scares people. Anyway, I was going back and forth to the Middle East four or five times a year as a quote-unquote civilian. I was having more close calls, and I had a really, a really bad one uh, right after my son was born. And as I'm, as I'm trying to get home, it occurred to me that you know what? I think I've used up most of the luck in my bag. I, I should write down a little bit about me for my son, so if anything happens, he would know about me. And so that's how the the genesis of the first book, the Viper Pilot book, because that was a, a memoir. And, you know, it, it did so well, which shocked and surprised me. I think it surprised Harper Collins too. Anyway, uh, they said, hey, you got any other ideas? And, you know, I, I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. What do you think about this one? And they loved it. And so I wrote Lords of the Sky. And then, you know, all the rest of them followed. And it was just too good of a too good of a lifestyle to get out of. So I quit doing the other stuff and 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 do this more or less full time because you know I get to I get to stay at home. I don't have to go to places in the world you can't pronounce anymore, and and nobody's trying to kill me anymore. So that's that's nice. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's really it's really a nice life. You know I, I like it. I enjoy it. I was surprised as you you know intimated uh, that that I liked it so much. But I guess I'd had enough. You know, adrenaline at that point, I, I didn't feel like I, I was I was leaving anything behind, you know. I think a lot of people have trouble later in life when, they've, when they haven't done much that's exciting, and that's when the trouble starts. But I'd already done all that, so it was, it was a nice transition to make to, to be a writer. Are you a music lover? I do. I enjoy it very much. I have absolutely no talent to play a musical instrument. I wish I did, but I, I can appreciate it. What are you listening to? These days, I, I guess you're, you're probably socializing a little less than you would normally. If, if you get an urge to, to uh, have a drink and sit on the couch or make dinner and put on some music, what's it going to be? Uh, I do that every night, as a matter of fact. Uh, come hell or high water, there is cocktail hour here. Uh, I'm a firm <laughs> believer in Frank Sinatra and martinis. I think it's a very civilized way to, to wrap up the day, and then the music that follows depends on the mood. You know, if it's... If it's been a if it's been a good day, then I I like uh, I love Broadway musical scores. 
I love jazz. I love uh, classic rock under the right circumstances, usually when I'm when I'm socializing. But uh, uh, and then I, I usually write with with some form of classical music in the background. Speaking of writing, what are you going to do next? There has to be something else coming down the pike. There is, as a matter of fact, I just signed a contract with uh, Macmillan's uh, St. Martin's Press for another book. So I am hard at work on that one. You know, it's kind of always the way it is, I, and that's why I keep very good notes. I have little folders on, on all my books, because when I do speaking engagements, sometimes people are asking me about a book that I wrote five years ago, and I'm not smart enough to keep all that in my head. So, you know, when I learn something new now, something else falls out. <laughs> so I, I have to keep good notes. I turned in Vengeance, the manuscript, almost a year ago. So it was in editing and then production. So, you know, I haven't really looked at it much in the last year, except for, for editing, which I hate. I've already gone on to the next book, and it also concerns uh, World War II and a story of a very, very incredible man that I hope everybody is going to enjoy reading about. Can we have his name? No, I can't give you any hints. Okay. Uh, that would spoil the fun. It's an awesome story, and more so because it's true. Fiction, I love to write fiction because I can just make it up, but when you run across something that's an incredible story that's true, I think it makes it even better if you can tell it right. So I'm going to attempt to do that. Is this something you knew about or you discovered poking around the archives? You know, what you just said is exactly how I get all my book ideas. When I'm poking around, uh, researching a book, I always run across stuff that I never knew. You know, as I get older, I'm always amazed at how much I don't know. Because you think, you know, after a good education and, and, a, and a good career, you, you know a lot of things, and maybe that's true, but I keep, I keep finding out so many things I don't know. And I keep uh, a pretty big file on story ideas as I'm going through researching. You know, sometimes I'll find some obscure mention of somebody or something, and I'll go off on a tangent for half an afternoon. <laughs> and, and in this case, this one paid off because it, it's a really good tangent, and, and I think people are really going to love the book. Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hampton, 151 combat missions, lots of books, uh, even a master's degree from Dartmouth College. Uh, I, I really thank you for the time. You're terrific. Well, Daniel, it was a pleasure. I, uh, I'm glad to talk to you again, and if you want to chat any time in the future, by all means, let me know. I'll, I'll always make time for you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The producer of digital content is Brian West. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.